How are y'all doing this morning? Take your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. Y'all give the sound a big hand for leading us in worship this morning. Man, wasn't that good? That was real good. And uh, like they mentioned, it's already been mentioned, uh, we're going to have that'll do a concert at 6 o'clock. That's the last part of our Trunk or Treat festivities tonight. From 4 to 6, 6 will be the uh, Trunk or Treat. Many of you are serving. Thank you in advance for all you'll be doing out there in different ways. If you're not already serving in a spot, just come and hang out. Uh, come and fellowship. It's going to be a great night. Uh, from 4 o'clock to 6 o'clock, and then at 6 o'clock out on our front lawn, we are going to have a concert by the sound, and it's going to be really, really good. So invite people, bring your back chairs, let's uh, look forward to a great night together. also want to say this, uh, this is the last Sunday of October, and I just want to say thank you to everybody who has given our family a card, a gift for Pastor Appreciation Month. I want to tell you how much I appreciate you, uh, how much we love y'all, and appreciate uh, everything um, that, uh, that God's doing through our church, to Him be the glory, uh, but it is an honor to be your pastor and to walk alongside of y'all, and we love you, and uh, just want to say that. All right. All right. Love y'all. So Nehemiah chapter 13 is where we are this morning. We are uh, wrapping up our study of Nehemiah called Restore. This is our 10th week, believe it or not, in this study. Nehemiah 13 we're, is where we are going to be. And I'm going to begin this sermon the same way that I've began a few of the sermons, by just giving you a quick summary of where we've been in this study. Nehemiah, an Israelite who's living in exile, serving as a cupbearer to a Persian king, probably 400 plus years before Christ comes into the world. He is in Persia serving this king. Here's a report that back home in Jerusalem, that even though two waves of Israelites have gone back from captivity to Jerusalem, that things in Jerusalem aren't going all that well. The temple has been rebuilt, rebuilt, but the walls around the city uh, have not been rebuilt. And they're in ruins, and his heart gets burdened by this. Uh, the glory of God for him and his mind is at stake here. He sees the city of God being vulnerable to attack. And so he prays about it, then he approaches his boss about it. Uh, not, you know, it doesn't look like the odds are in his favor in that situation with a pagan Persian boss king Artaxerxes uh, either his life could be on the line but he approaches him asks for permission not only does God work in that situation and that the king gave him permission the king also uh, he gave him the empire credit card and said charge it all to the Persian empire and he funded the entire project by chapter 7 the wall is built uh, it's an amazing feat uh, it built in 52 days, but in chapters 8 through 10, we discover that a more important uh, project is being done, a more important work is being done than this wall project, way more significant restoration project, and that's the spiritual restoration that's being done in a people. And we've seen this happen, haven't we? We've seen the people of God centering their lives around the Word of God. We've seen them confessing their sin and getting right with God. They've rededicated their lives as a nation to God. They've gotten together and had this big worship service that we looked at last week in chapters 11 and 12, worshiping God, praising Him for what He had done and who He was. And so that's where we left off in chapter 12 with them joyfully worshiping and serving God. And if Hollywood writes this script, that's where you roll the credits and play the music and they live happily ever after. But Nehemiah is not a fairy tale. It does not end on a happy note. Now, we know that the Bible ends on a happy note, right? The story of redemption ends on a more joyful note than our minds could even begin to fathom or imagine. But the Old Testament ends on a sour note of sin and rebellion. And it ends that way on purpose to leave us hopeful, to leave us longing for the coming of Christ. Another way you could say it, to leave us 
longing for Christmas. To leave us in anticipation for the coming of Jesus Christ who will go to the cross and deal with our problem of sin, who will raise from the dead, who will one day return again and set up His kingdom where all the redeemed will live with Him happily ever after. This book ends on a sour note leaving us longing for a Savior. And it also ends on a sour note to keep us in touch with the reality that between here and our heaven heavenly happily ever after with Christ, we're going to battle sin. Even as followers of Jesus Christ, we're going to daily battle this thing called sin. And as God rebukes the people of Israel for their sin and calls them to repent 2,500 years ago, as we're reading in this story here, this morning he's going to call us to get right with him too. Would you stand with your Bibles open? We've stood a lot this morning, so I'm not going to read the entire chapter. All right, um, But let me begin to read in verse 1 and follow with me as we'll skip around a little bit. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread or water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions to the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked, leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers and brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Then run your eyes to verse 17. Uh, Nehemiah's looking around, seeing other things that are wrong. It says, verse 17, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Look at verse 23. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, here we go, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to your, their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. I'm not going to skip over that. We are going to talk about that this morning. Look at verse 29. This is how Nehemiah ends. This is his prayer to God as he ends this book. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood in the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priest and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that this morning you would help our minds through the power of your spirit to understand a passage that can be difficult to understand in different places. I pray that you would help our hearts, that we would not just understand it, but you'd help our hearts to believe it. 
And Lord, I pray that you would help us to apply your word. We cannot do this without you. We cannot do this without your spirit at work in us. And we're thankful for your word. Lord, we're thankful that it is an everlasting word. We're thankful that it is a sanctifying word. And Lord, I pray, John 17, 17, in this room today, that you would sanctify us by your truth. And we know your word is truth. So I pray we'd submit our hearts under it, we'd be teachable, and that you would change us and conform us more to the image of Jesus. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when you hear the word rebuke, my guess is that it doesn't immediately conjure up feelings of warmth inside of your mind. All right, we have a natural aversion to rebuke. All right, we have a natural aversion to being corrected, and yet that's something that we regularly need in our life. You say, wow, well, it's like the old hymn says, we are prone to wander. So I'm talking to you as believers. We need rebuke. We need correction. In this text, we see that God rebukes his people in three ways. He rebukes his people in three ways, as we see in Nehemiah 13, and he continues to rebuke his people in these three ways today. Number one, here's the first way we see God rebuking his people. God uses his word to rebuke his people. Now, this is a theme that we've seen throughout Nehemiah, haven't we? In chapter 8, you've got Ezra, the scribe, who comes out, stands on the wooden platform, elevates what? Reads from the what? The word of God, the law of God. It resulted in the people hearing God's word, people seeing their sin, being convicted of their sin because of the light of God's word shining on their lives, and they turn from their sin. They turn back to the Lord. We see in chapter 10, the people making a covenant to walk in obedience to God and what? His word. But as God's people often do, what we see here in chapter 13, what their main problem is, is they've once again wandered away from what? They've wandered away from His Word. We see in verse 1 that God's people had apparently once again uh, committed a sin that they had committed before, and that's mingling with the idolatrous people of the land. All right, This is uh, the kind of problem that you see multiple times throughout, not just Nehemiah, but Ezra. Remember, you're supposed to read Ezra and Nehemiah together. It's all telling one story of these three ways of exiles going back to Jerusalem out of Persian captivity. And for multiple times, you see them committing this sin of, of intermingling and intermarrying with tribes outside of the nation of Israel. Now, I want to make sure something's very clear right here. This is not, as people have tried to make passages like this, this is not an issue of race here. If you're drawing this conclusion right here, that this is an issue of race, you're not doing a good job of studying your Bible. This is not an issue of race. The issue here is worship. God prohibited His people from intermingling and intermarrying with the peoples of the land because the peoples of the land were idolaters who were leading the people of God into sin. This isn't about race. So this isn't a passage that you can use to proof text some kind of point Uh, about God banning uh, people being in relationships with people of other ethnicities and crazy things like that. That's not what this is about. This is not about race. God's not banning people from intermingling and intermarrying people of different ethnicities. Just read the story of Ruth. All right? She's a Moabite. All right? She's a foreigner who marries a Jew and ends up being the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. This isn't about race. It's about worship. It's about faith. He'd forbidden the people from intermingling and intermarrying with people of different faith. That's what this is about, who were worshiping other gods. And they were uh, doing uh, just that, and they were disobeying God's word. All right? And the point here in Nehemiah 13, in this first point about God using his word to rebuke his people, is 
that when God's people read His Word, when they're confronted with this sin, and God uses the Word to rebuke them, look at the response. Verse 3, As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. They hear God's Word, they see their sin again, and they obey God's Word. And they turn from their sin, and they turn back to God. They see their sin, they see what's required of them, they repent of their sin, and they get right with God. Now, get this. this again, this is not the first time they've dealt with this sin. They deal with this sin over and over and over and over again. It's not the first time we see them repenting of this sin. Ezra 9 and 10. That's where they're in this story, in this part of the history of Israel, where they're confronted with this sin regarding uh, intermarriage and uh, intermingling with idolaters of the land. And what do they do? They're the same thing. They're confronted by their sin. Through God's word, they're rebuked and they repent. All right? We saw the same thing in Nehemiah chapter 9. What do they do? I'm on repeat for a reason here. They see their sin, same thing, intermingling with people of the land who are idolaters, and they repent and they turn back to God. All right? God's people over and over and over again are, are confronted in their sin, and then they repent of their sin and they get right with Him. Now, we can look at that and there can be a discouraging pattern here. All right? Jim uh, Hamilton, the commentator, gives us a little bit of a different perspective, though. He says the reason for the discouragement that we can sense when we see people messing up over and over like this in Scripture is that they're committing the same sin again and again and again, intermingling with the peoples of the land. But how might this passage be encouraging. It's encouraging to know that just as sin persists and persists and persists in the lives of these people who are in the story that's found in God's Word, it also persists in our life. You see, maybe this morning you have some kind of sin, some type of vice in your life that you're inclined to return to again and again and again. Is there some kind of particular sin in your life that represents your continual, continual need for repentance, right? And you confess it to the Lord. You ask God for His forgiveness. You, you, in that moment, trust that He's forgiven you. And you move on your life only to find what? You're going back to that same sin. You're wandering right back into that sin again. Listen, as we see the people of God right here, once again, for what feels like the thousandth time through the history of Israel, committing the same sin in their life, I want it to encourage you. And we see them repenting again for what seems like the thousandth time. I want it to encourage you this morning with whatever that vice is, whatever that sin is, to never give up. Do not stop battling. I mean, that's the temptation, isn't it? To give in? Don't give in. Keep fighting. Keep struggling. Keep confessing. Keep repenting. Keep turning back to God. Yes, we are going to see in this passage this morning that God is holy, that He is committed to continuously and to always take sin in your life. Very, very serious. But listen to me, believer. Lean in and listen to this. He is committed to taking sin in your life very seriously. But we're also going to be reassured by this passage once again this morning that He's also committed to abounding in steadfast love towards you. So as you experience the rebuke of the Lord this morning through His Word, then let it minister in your life once again. God's not going to stop rebuking you for sin in your life, and we must not stop repenting when He does. 
in experiencing what we've experienced. You do that, you let his word minister in your life again this morning. Whatever sin that is, even that recurring sin in your life, and you repent it of again, and what you're going to find is you're going to, in a fresh way, you're going to experience a truth that we've already celebrated in this study together that you will experience once again that there is always, 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 always keep saying always in your mind as long as you can. Always more grace in Christ, more mercy in Christ, more forgiveness in Christ than there's sin in us. God uses his word to rebuke his people. Number two, God uses his enemies to rebuke his people. That's interesting, isn't it? God even uses his enemies to rebuke his people. We actually see this throughout all of the Bible. Remember this morning, believer, God is sovereign over all. God is sovereign over all peoples. God is sovereign over everything. There's nothing outside of his sovereign control, including his enemies. In Joshua 7, God uses the people of Ai to rebuke the people of God. At the end of 2 Chronicles, God uses Babylon to rebuke his disobedient children living in Judah, which actually sets the stage, doesn't it, for everything that we've studied about in Nehemiah, but also in Ezra that we see there. Time and time again, we see God in the Bible using his enemies to rebuke his people. We see something similar happen right here in Nehemiah 13. But here's what's different. In this case, in Nehemiah 13, it's not that God's people were trying to stand against their enemies and because of their sin, they were overtaken. They're literally opening the front door and letting the enemies come in to their community, to their life. Verse 5 says... They prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering. All right, so the years 433 B.C., Nehemiah, he's been back in Babylon, some say five years, some say 13 years. We're not exactly sure how long he's been away, but we do know he's been away from this text. You know, it's implied in this text that he's been away for a, a number of, uh, a, a length of time working again for the Persian king Artaxerxes. He's kind of taken up his responsibility again as the cupbearer to the king. But after a period of time, he returns back to Jerusalem and he comes into town. And what does he find? He finds an enemy of God, a pagan enemy of God, living it up like a king in the temple. And the problem is, is God's people all seem to be cool with it. This is Tobiah the Ammonite. Remember him? It's Sam Ballot's sidekick, one of the enemies of God, shows up earlier in this story, mocks God's people. He's the one who says a little fox is going to jump up on your little weak wall and knock it all down in chapter 4. This is not a good man. This is an enemy of the people of God. He's an enemy of the mission of God. He's an enemy of everything that God's people are called to live for, namely the glory of God. And it says, though, that he was a relative of Eliashib, the priest. That's a prime example right there of why they were given the command of not to intermarry with the peoples of the land. This is exactly why. So you have him marrying into the, into the family of this Jewish priest, Eliashib. And because of that connection, Eliashib hooks him up like Airbnb connection in the temple. It doesn't, like it'd be bad enough to give him a broom closet, right? It gives him like a whole suite of rooms. The rooms that were actually for the offerings that the people of God are supposed to bring in to the temple of God to worship God. It's a very disturbing scene. So they're neglecting the worship of God. He walks in and sees them ignoring the holiness of God. Desecrating the temple of God. And you could blame Elisha and Tobiah, but... What really disturbs Nehemiah and what is really disturbing as you look at this picture right here, there's no indication that anybody within the people of God is doing anything to stop it. So when Nehemiah walks into the temple and he sees this, and he sees Tobiah sitting there living it up like a king in the holy temple of God, just that picture 
It punches him in the gut. The presence of Tobiah in the temple reveals that something is very, very, very wrong in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah realizes that God's people are grossly neglecting God. And in the presence of Tobiah is rebuking the people of God. The presence of this Amorite is putting the reality that the people are in sin in Israel on full display. Now, how does this work today? How does God rebuke his people through his enemies today? This is very difficult to to know because we're looking back on history. We're looking back on the pages of Scripture and we can see how through nations, how through pagan nations, how through even situations like this, God rebukes his people through his enemies, right? So it's difficult to pinpoint in the present how God's doing this, but I want to give you one application that I still think is faithful to the text. One way that I believe that God's rebuking specifically the church today about sin in our life as a church through the presence of our enemies in the same way that the presence of Tobiah is rebuking the people of God about their sin. It's just look, look around us. Think about our community. Think about the world in which we live. Think about the nation in which we live. And I want you to think about the, the, how sin has manifested itself. I want you to think about the works of the enemy in our community. I want you to think about the brokenness that surrounds us. I want you to think about the lostness that surrounds us. I want you to think about the sins of our culture. I want you to think about the breakdown in the home, the fatherlessness in our culture that's plagued every city across this nation. Although we may not, church, be guilty of committing those sins ourselves, what if through those things, the works of our enemy, God's rebuking the church for their sin of apathy over the last 50 years? The sin of churches turning more into holy huddles and cruise ships and communities instead of them being the life-saving stations, rescue boats, going out and seeking, and seeking to see people saved by the grace of God like we should be. So God rebukes his people through his word. God rebukes his people through his enemies. And third, God uses his servants to rebuke his people. Here in Nehemiah 13, we see the servant that God's rebuking his people through. And that is Nehemiah. All right, we see it beginning right here with the situation with Tobiah. Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem. So he sees this happening. He sees Tobiah living like a fat cat in the temple, like a king, this pagan Amorite. And what does it say in verse 8? What is his reaction? He says this, and I was very angry. All right, there's your memory verse this week. And I was, stitch that on a pillow, all right? And I was very angry. Your life verse, I don't know. The text said that he sees everything going on in this city, and he's, it, there's, there's no doubt, he's furious. This is fury. But this is what we call righteous indignation. Right? God's temple's being profaned, and Nehemiah who is living in right fellowship with God in this moment, seeing things rightly, living in light of God's word, is not going to stand by the rest of them and be okay with it. And he starts running around like a wild man. He starts taking all of Tobias' furniture and starts throwing it out on the lawn, throwing all his luggage, all of his belongings, stuff flying everywhere. Like Black Friday sale or something, right? Going on in the temple. Has the chamber cleansed, restores it to its original purpose, the storeroom, for people to bring in their offerings to God. Let me ask you this morning, does that scene remind you of anything? If you study God's word, it should take your mind into the New Testament to Matthew chapter 21. This is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus. 
around 400 years later would enter the temple, would find, pe- find people using the sacrificial temple in a sacrificial system in the temple to prey on poor people to enrich themselves and will drive them out of the temple with a whip and start turning over tables. It looks a lot like Jesus right here. What in the world is going on in Matthew chapter 21 with Jesus? What God is doing is he's using the Son of God to do the same thing that he's doing in Nehemiah 13 through the servant of God. He's rebuking his people about their sin. Now, if you're new to this and you look at this and go, what's up with Nehemiah and Jesus throwing furniture? And they just need to take a chill, but they need to relax. Like that's a, that seems like a little bit of overkill there. If that's your reaction, you fail to recognize something about God and his holiness. You f- your heart has not yet been gripped by the holiness of God and the truth that God is serious about sin. He hates it. The way that Nehemiah is reacting here is reflecting how much God hates sin. Nehemiah knows how radically disgusting this sin is in the sight of his holy God, and that's why he reacts so radically with righteous indignation. You should say he reacts appropriately. Let me ask you, if you went to the doctor this week and the doctor came in and had a seat and looked up at you and said, hey, listen, you got cancer. Well, really? But listen, just take two aspirin a week and I think you're going to be just fine. You'd say, I think I'm going to take, I'm going to go get a second opinion, sir, right? If you went to your house one night and it's on fire and the fire trucks have already gotten there and you get out and you... Your house is engulfed in flames and all the firemen are just standing there. And you start running around going, hey, are you going to take the hoses off the, off the trucks? Are you going to do something here? And the fireman's like, nah, it'll probably burn out. It should be fine. Would you be okay with that? If you, what if a policeman witnessed a robbery that you also witnessed? Like a pretty terrible robbery and the police officer's just standing there. And you run over and you're like, hey, are you going to do they just robbed that person. Are you going to do anything about it? The police officer stand there with his coffee. Hey, hey, boys will be boys, right? You know, may just be having a bad day. Would you be okay with that? No, we, we, here's the point. We understand that there's certain kind of intense situations like that that call for certain kind of serious reactions. There are things like that you don't just shrug off. And when you understand the seriousness of sin, you understand why Nehemiah is reacting like this. And through his reaction, God's rebuking his people. People who are shrugging their shoulders at a sin like Tobiah taking up residence in the temple. And it snaps them into an awareness of the seriousness of their sin. So he's rebuking them for the profaning of the worship that's due to their God. Verses 15 through 22, Nehemiah rebukes God's people for their neglect of the Sabbath. Then finally we see him rebuking God's people. Verses 23 through 27, here again of their sin of intermingling and intermarrying with the pagans of the land. God's people, it says there that they married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And the first line of verse 24 helps you understand why this is a big problem. Why this intermingling and intermarrying was a problem. It says, and half of their children, he comes in and sees everything, and enough time has passed where he's able to make this statement. Half of their children at this point, the children of the Jews, spoke the language of Ashdod, but could not speak the language of Judah. Half of the children, the the Hebrew children, could not speak their language, the Hebrew language. That was the result of intermarriage. That's why God had forbidden it. 
And Nehemiah's fired up, not because he's xenophobic, but because their ability to know God through His Word is on the line because of their disobedience. At that time, the Bible was only written in Hebrew. And if all the Hebrew speakers were to die out due to intermarriage with pagan nations, God, they would lose their ability. God's people would lose their ability to know God through His Word. And so Nehemiah's rebuke is swift. And it's severe. Y'all ready for this? Verse 25, I confronted them. I cursed them. I beat some of them, pulled out their hair, and made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. All right. All righty then. What do we do with that? that? That had to be a little different around Jerusalem later that day when all that happened. How'd your meeting with Pastor Nehemiah go? I don't, I, I don't want to talk about it. Right? Where's all your hair? I don't want to talk about it. Now, just in case, I just want to make sure, you know, just in case, just to be safe. Another reminder, there are places in Scripture where things are descriptive and prescriptive. All right? With just because something is here doesn't mean we're supposed to go do it. This is one of those descriptive places, not one of those prescriptive places. This isn't an evangelism strategy we want to be picking up and implementing. All right? Can you imagine being part of that evangelism like class? Listen, step one, quick class. You're going to curse them. Step two, you're going to beat them. Step three, you're going to pull out their hair and then hold them down and make them make an oath to God, all right? <laughs> so it, it's difficult for us here to understand and look back on what's going on here. What we do know is that by cursing them, it doesn't mean that he was just hurling ex, expletives at them, all right? Most likely, he's calling down the curses of the covenant that God had prescribed for that kind of sin. Now, the beating and the pulling out of the hair, that's difficult to understand. A lot of commentators say that this is most likely some formal ceremony uh, where in that part of the world in that time in history where people were, were disciplined in this way uh, to rebuke them for shameful acts of sin. Now, you're like, that really still doesn't help. It's a little strange. It's a little weird. I'm with you. But let me just tell you this. Let's just praise God this morning for the new covenant. All right, in the Old Testament here, God's using Nehemiah, the servant of God, to rebuke his people. And God is still using servants of God today to rebuke people about their sin. But it looks, praise God, a lot different than it did under the old covenant. Right, we don't have Nehemiahs and we don't need Nehemiahs running around ripping people's hair out because of their sin. Today, God rebukes his people through his new covenant community. Through the church. Through brothers and sisters in Christ that God's given us within our church. This local expression of God's family. That's our family of faith to do life with. He's given us each other to help us battle and fight sin. Something all of us battle with. Every one of us in this room have this in common. We are sinners in need of God's grace. We all have the same problem in this room. And our common problem is sin. And the way this book ends like this leaves you with the question, what are you going to do about the sin in your life? And the rest of the Old Testament and Nehemiah right here points us to the only place that our sin can really be dealt with, and that's the cross. See, this is the end of Old Testament history. Did you know that? As Nehemiah wraps up right here, there's no other events recorded in the Old Testament between right here and 400 years later when Jesus Christ will be born. This is the last 
last of it. You're like, well, why is it positioned right here in the Bible? Well, the Bible's not chronologically laid out. And everything after Nehemiah, all the minor prophets, the ministry of the major prophets, all of that was happening. You've got to reach back. All of that was happening on the timeline of Israel's history that is laid out from the beginning of the Bible up to Nehemiah. Make sense? This is the end of history in Israel. And we're left in this moment. We're left with this focus on sin here to leave us longing for Christmas. To leave us longing for our Savior who would come into the world and live a righteous life we can't live and then would go to the cross where His beard will be ripped out in our place. Where His back will be beaten in our place. Where He will bear our sins on the cross. And for all who trust in Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins will be saved. I hope you've been saved this morning. If you are saved, isn't it great when you come to Christ and you get saved, you just never deal with sin again? It's happily ever after, right? No way. We still struggle, and that's why we need, even after we see initially where this, a story like Nehemiah is supposed to point us to, and that's the saving grace of Jesus Christ on the cross, we still need these passages that once we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we can come back to, to see more and more how serious God takes the sin in our life. Can we just be honest today that we all deal with sin? Amen. We're going to put on masks. Kids are going to put on masks. Maybe some of y'all are going to put on costumes later on today. I don't know. For chunk or treat. We're going to be pretending later on today. Let's leave that for later on today. But this morning, in here, when we worship, can we get rid of the masks? Can we get rid of the costumes? Can we not pretend and just admit that we all struggle? Hey, as long as you live and breathe in this life, believer, you will struggle against sin. Do we sin? That's not a question. The question is how do you respond when you're rebuked for your sin? When you're confronted in your sin? Y'all give me a few more minutes this morning. Turn to 1 John real quick. When you are confronted with your sin, what 1 John, in the first chapter, gives us, it shows us there's really two responses to that. Number one, we see in chapter one of 1 John that we can, we can try to be dishonest about it. That's the only two reactions when you're confronted with your sin. Number one, you can be dishonest about it. You can put on a front. We can be in church, a church service like this. We can go to Bible Connect Group. We can be around Christian people and yet be hiding in plain sight. We can pretend like we got it all together, like everything's just fine. And there's a temptation to lie to others about sin in our life. But then what John, what John shows us right here is there's this downward spiral. We start lying about our sin just kind of to other people. Then all of a sudden you'll start deceiving yourself. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's a dangerous place for you to be as a believer. To where you begin to look at the sin in your life and you say things like, I'm good, I'm okay. It's not that big a deal. We're good at convincing ourselves that some sins in our life aren't that big a deal. We can convince ourselves about the nature of sin. And we can say things like, well, I didn't act on it. Hey, I was a little road rage. I wanted to punch him in the face, but I didn't do it. Hey, I looked, but I didn't touch. Listen, there are a lot of people in this age of technology that we live in who believe that because I haven't committed an overt, ultimate act that somehow I'm innocent. 
And let me ask you, have you deceived yourself into thinking that you can let your heart run around on the devil's playground and still be good with God somehow? I so wanted that promotion, but she got it. Man, she, she lied to get that thing, man. She cheated to get that promotion, and we ignore covetousness in our heart. Greed, lust, pride, we deceive ourselves. But since I haven't acted, I'm good. What did David say? Search my heart, O oh God. Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Some of us may try to justify our sin. Like normally this is wrong, but Pastor, you don't, you don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand what it's like to be in my circumstance. You don't understand what it's like to be in my shoes. See how we do that? We deceive ourselves about our sin. We can deceive ourselves about the grace of God towards our sin. The grace of God is not a license to sin. If your theology of grace produces anything other than holiness, you know nothing about the amazing grace of God. Question, are you being dishonest with yourself about sin in your life? Are you minimizing it? Are you excusing it? Are you justifying it? Are you simply not calling it sin? You say, man, what's the big deal? Hey, I'm forgiven. Be careful there. Because with that sin in your life, the problem with that sin being in your life is your fellowship with God is hindered right now. Hey, our relationship with God as a child of God, in Christ, as a believer, redeemed, saved, born again, our relationship with God never changes. We're His forever child, but my fellowship with God can be hindered by sin. Listen carefully. Everything in my life rises and falls based on my fellowship with God. I will never know the abundant life that He's promised apart from moment by moment fellowship with Him. An undealt sin, undealt with sin in my life robs me of that fellowship. And just to time out right here, let me make sure something's very, very clear. If if you're somebody who's walking in continuous deception about your sin, The issue may not be fellowship with God. It may be an issue of you not having a relationship with God at all. The assurance of my salvation, listen to me carefully, is not an experience in my past. It's a relationship in my presence. That's what 1 John teaches us. The assurance of my salvation isn't me hanging my hat. Listen carefully. I I was raised in church. I heard the same things you heard. I want you to listen to me carefully. It's not some experience in my past. It's a relationship in the present. You say, well, I know I'm saved because at youth camp in 1997, I made a decision on the last night at camp to make the Lord, my uh, Jesus, my Lord and Savior. You may have, but you want to know how you know that that decision back at youth camp was real? It's because it's still real today. You know how I know I'm married? Is it because on June... 18, 2005, over at North Jacksonville Baptist Church. I stood in the front of that church in front of a bunch of people and said some things and got a certificate and put, I got a ring on my finger this morning. Is, is that how I know that I'm married? You know, you, know, you know how I know I'm married? Because I woke up next to her this morning. Because we talked before I left the house. Now, if I wake up and she's not there and a few weeks go by and a few months go by, then I better start asking the question, am I still married? If I'm walking in perpetual darkness, 
if I'm constantly living in deception about sin in my life, for sure that's a, a sure sign of damaged fellowship, but it may be a sign of a non-existent relationship with God altogether. I'm not talking right there about momentary acts of sin. I'm talking about a lifestyle, an ongoing, continuous lifestyle of sin. So if that's you, you need a relationship with God this morning. The momentary acts of sin, though, that are undealt with in your life, you can be dishonest about those this morning, believer. Or in 1 John 1, 9, what does it say? You can be honest about your sin. You know what would bring revival to our community? You want to know what would bring an awakening here to our church? Is if, if today, man, we would just simply get honest about our sin. Verse 9 says, if we do, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess there means to say or speak the same thing, to call sin what it is, to own it, to get honest about it, to stop lying about it. When you get rebuked, and if you feel the Spirit placing his finger on some sin in your life this morning. In that moment, in this moment, you have a decision to make. You can be honest. God, you're right. And I'm wrong. Or you can start the deception spiral process. By pretending like everything's okay this morning. No, I'm good. And then you're going to start deceiving yourself. And you're going to keep justifying your sin. And you're going to continue to live in broken fellowship with God and rob yourself of the abundant life that's available to those who walk in the light. Or you can be honest with God this morning about your unfaithfulness. And if you're honest with God this morning about your unfaithfulness, what does it say there in that verse? Circle that word in 1 John 1, 9, faithful. He will be faithful to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And whatever that sin is that's got a wedge between you and having a fellowship, restored fellowship with you and your heavenly father this morning, he will take that, he will throw that junk out of your life like Nehemiah threw all Tobiah's junk out of the temple and you can experience restored fellowship with your father this morning. You know, at the end of Nehemiah, very last part of Nehemiah, he gives a summary of his work there in that final verse. A summary of all of his work, of all the work that God did through him, and I think it's interesting that he doesn't mention one word about the wall. That was a big deal. That was important. Keep God's people safe. To preserve God's people, because from God's people, the Messiah would come. That's an important thing. He doesn't mention that wall at all. What does he talk about? What was the most significant thing accomplished in his eyes during his time in Jerusalem? The spiritual renewal and restoration that he brought to God's people. Verse 30, he says, Thus I cleanse them. Churches as important as buildings are and budgets are and programs are, the spiritual renewal and restoration of a people is the most important thing. The most important thing in your life this morning is to be cleansed and right with God. If you 
don't know him this morning, what it means is you need to get right with him in the sense that you need to be made right through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and experience for the first time a reconciled relationship between you and God. For many of us this morning, it means you need to get clean in the sense that you need restored fellowship with God. You've let some Tobias take a residence in your heart and you've justified it. And this morning, it's time to get honest. Will you get honest this morning? Can we be a church that doesn't pretend, but is a church where it's okay to not be okay? A church that understands that our position in Christ is permanent. As a child of God, nothing ever changes that. Our relationship never changes. And because that is true, we're free to be weak. And we're free to confess our sins. And when we do, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you bow your head and close your eyes this morning? And just if you would, sit still. If you don't have to leave, don't leave. Imitation is going to be a little different this morning. The sound is going to come and they're going to play a song. That's going to capture within the song, the kind of church that we pray God would help us to be. And I want you to listen to this song. I want you to listen to these words. And during this song, I want you to respond to the word this morning. Has God rebuked you through his word about sin in your life? Have you been dishonest about sin in your life? Have you put on a show? Have you deceived yourself? Listen, I know it's not popular to talk about sin but we will never experience the power of God in our daily lives until we begin to deal with our sin on a moment-by-moment basis. You say, well, what? because I, I'm going to encourage you to come down front this morning to get right with God. I'll be down here. Hey, if you need to receive Christ this morning, if you need to know what it means to receive the gospel and to get right with God in that way and be saved, I'm down here to talk with you. I'm down here to pray with you if you need prayer. But if you need to come up here and just kneel before God, as an outward expression of saying, God, I got some business to do with you. I got some sin to own. I want you to do that. You say, well, well I, I'm worried about what people think. No, listen, when, when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin in your life, you don't care about what anybody else thinks except God. And running to Him seeking His mercy again and seeking His grace and seeking that restored fellowship that's available to you this morning. As this song is sung, sit there, pray, come down front, I'll be down front, but respond. Let's get honest with God this morning.